Warning. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for language and adult situations. This body belongs to me. Nil Desperandum 15. Legs by Tara Barnett. Tara is a writer of speculative fiction living in Oregon. She has previously published poetry in stone telling and fiction in both Diamonds and Toads and daily science fiction. You can find her online at tarabarnett.com. The ever-popular and always lovely Lorna Boyle returns as our narrator. Legs by Tara Barnett. I love my legs. I chose the custom red striping on the sides when I was 12, with vintage ball joint knees and toes patterned with scrolls a more expensive model than my parents wanted. We customised the calves with embossed stars that wind a gentle arc up my legs to my thighs. I was quite the designer even then. My parents made me pay for half of them with my allowance from that summer because they were so utterly frivolous. It was the summer without ice cream. I looked at my old blue feet every time the truck went by and curled my toes in anticipation, smiling to myself. I reluctantly compromised on my original plan to put a somewhat flashy gemstone line on the sides of my thighs. We settled on plain titanium with red bands just above the knees, creating a permanent streamline modern stockings. My mum thought they still looked a little more adult than she would have liked on a 12-year-old. She ended up liking them when she saw them on me, and maybe she just wanted to see me smile. Dad made such a stink about the amount that they cost, but I know he was happy to spoil me. My brother got a new video game system because he was so jealous. They're just as serviceable as my old blue composite ones, but I love them much, much more. Maybe only because I've had them longer, and I wanted them so much. I never really thought about the blue ones. They were functional. They got me where I needed to go. These legs have meaning for me. I usually dress around them with short skirts to highlight the vintage red rocket design, which is particularly striking when I'm riding my classic reproduction Schwinn Aero cycle that I picked out for my birthday that same year. I had a sense of style even then. I love designing my life. These legs have coloured my development as a young fashionista. these emotions and memories get condensed into one nervous utterance when I try to speak them to my doctor. She asks me if I'm having trouble with my legs. I tell her no. It's too hard to give voice to the complexity of my relationship with the metal part of me. I want to tell her that I am living a stream of consciousness nightmare. In my head it all makes sense, but I feel like I'm living in this constant present tense, living both my life and my memories as now. I wax literary over nothing, but I can't give an order to a restaurant. Something is wrong. I want to tell her to give me something to slow it down, to get rid of this nagging hurt. I don't even know how I'd justify it if I tried. I say nothing. But I've clearly been thinking, so she knows there's something I want to say. She asks me why I am bruised all over my thighs. 
In my sleep, I hit myself over and over and over without wanting to. I love my life. I hit myself. I love myself. I hit myself over and over and over. I don't know why. I know the answer is there, just out of reach. My life is a hysterical mess, I tell her, out of focus. I can talk and talk and talk and never get to the crux of it. I can't even think of the place a crux would exist. I know it can never be spoken because I've never heard it spoken. It seems like if it exists, somebody out there would say it. I admire my design as she makes notes. My toes are cold, but my knees are covered by the hospital gown. That's the other problem with a titanium model, I guess. The heat, they don't hold it well. I hop off the table and onto the soft floor, feeling it hug the sides of my feet. It's always a little warmer than the air, probably just from the friction of people walking. It almost feels alive when you're barefoot. Her assistant is young. He takes her notes when she calls him and delivers my prescription promptly. Sleep aids. I think this is likely a surface solution. He looks at the bruises under the hem of the gown without shame, and I am ashamed for him. He has a plain blue composite arm, which is warm when he hands me my pills. There are scratches of varying depths down the side of it, marring its clean design. He is, unlike me, without vanity. He is mesmerized. He stares when he should leave. I watch him consider, as though he can lift the hem with his eyes, tracing the glassy perfection of my legs. He shakes his head and exits with a flushed face. Maybe it was a knowing face. Maybe he saw something he recognized in me. I am aroused by the sight of him seeing me. I feel drawn to him. Even the cover on the doorknob made from some soft neon safety material makes me dream of sex with him. It's the texture of skin. I've always found it erotic living in this overwhelmingly dermal city. It was designed for hands like his and legs like mine. We sense through solids so we have little grip. It makes sense. When our softer appendages are replaced by feeling metal, the things we once made hard must become soft. It's ergonomics. I still find it erotic. I know it's just hormones, but this eternal softness has always been mildly suggestive for me. Every door handle, every eating utensil, everything beneath our feet, and everything held by our hands is a stretching, sticking, velvet apparatus of a familiarly phallic texture. We are surrounded by mimicry of that most sensitive skin. The ground in particular is a constant soft and swelling thing, like the floor is possessed. It does help with traction. However, I find it slightly disorienting to be constantly walking on fleshy paths. I replaced the foam of my small apartment with thick white carpet last year after my first couture dress sold. In public, the elastoma walkways are easier to maintain and more cheerful. Kids discover early that you can burn your knees if you slide on them. Flesh knees, of course. I burned my elbows and sometimes my face. I think maybe it is that as we become more mechanical, we make our little world more sapient. How else could we interact with it? I get dressed. I imagine him undressing me. 
I push my fantasy of him to the back of my mind, where I am holding memories of my first sexual encounter hostage until I reach a more private location. I leave with thoughts of both. The pills are making noises in my purse. It distracts me. The assistant runs to find me in the hall, a secret in his eyes. He hands me a little silver stick taped to a note in calligraphic perfection on beautiful off-white stationery, as though he had written it days ago and made many drafts. It asks me to meet him at the community water centre tonight. It has a time. It looks like a wedding invitation. Everything I do is consumed with the fantasy of our meeting. I cannot focus at work, cannot sew a single stitch. My projects fall to the floor as I stare at the vaulted ceiling of my studio thinking of things past. The first love I ever knew was hurried. I loved him, and then I was slighted by him, and then I never spoke to him again in the fashion of adolescent absolutism. If we met on the street now, we might talk if we remembered each other's faces. I remember best the feeling of his hand on my knee, running lubricated fingers over the place the ball sits. I couldn't feel the crevice when he touched it. It struck me that the map of nerves in the titanium must be a perfect match for the legs that should have been there, and since those legs did not have balls for knees or lubricated joints, it was plain that I should not be able to feel them. I thought very complex thoughts to avoid thinking of my lover, then shirtless, assaulting me with his desires. His eyes were so excited like he was ready to show me a whole new world. I could not ignore the first sensation of something inside. It hurt, but it was good. It was curious because I had no inkling there was a place there that could be touched or rubbed or pleasured. Outside, certainly, I had felt a desire to be touched, but that cavity was full of unknown nerves. Once activated, I found that I had experienced that desire before. I had not known it to be desire. It was strange and unique. I wonder what it will be like with this newfound friend with compassionate and hungry eyes. His mysterious note, his lack of manners, and his choice of venue sparked my lewd imagination. I don't want to go home tonight anyway, just to drag myself up to kill off this strange sadness inside me. I look down and find myself gripping my legs while my mind is wandering. This has been happening more and more often, even though I try to stop it. It's bad for me, I know. My fingertips can just barely slip under the cuff that sits close to my thighs. That is the strangest part of me, I think. I used to spend hours when I was younger wiggling a finger in that place because I can feel one finger twice, once on flesh, once on metal. It doesn't hurt. It just feels strange. My parents were concerned when I was little that I would damage myself. The doctor who fitted me with my composite legs warned me not to touch the edges, and when I did, he sealed them with putty until I stopped. He said it's bad for an amputee, that it damages pathways in the mind. I believe it's probably bad, but no worse than picking your nose. It's just not an adult habit. I hadn't done it in a long time, but then I noticed my fingers slipping down there involuntarily. I might go get it sealed up again just to be safe, but I haven't decided yet. When I think about that doctor, I shudder a little. 
It was his face I first saw after the accident. I was in shock, missing both my legs, and then suddenly I was awake and they were back, but different, solid. They were the same weight, but different, and I knew right away. I don't even remember now what my organic legs felt like, but I do remember the change. I don't even remember feeling pain. I was only in the hospital a week, and then I started kindergarten that month. When I got these new legs, the procedure was relatively quick. My parents dropped me off that afternoon and picked me up that evening. I didn't even get to appreciate them at the hospital. The anesthesia had made me so drowsy. But when I woke up the next morning, it was like Christmas in bed. I feel my thoughts drifting in and out of these memories often now, just trying to puzzle something together, like looking at a road through fog. I just need to know where it's leading. I need to close this uncomfortable mood and move on. But nothing helps. I go out with friends, go to work, take vacations, and every night it's the same nervous sleep. Looking at the note, I pick up his little silver stick. It is decorated on the side with vines, and it curls at the end like a key. I wonder if it opens a door or a trunk, or if it really is a key at all. It could be a piece of jewellery. I smile at our strange and classic courtship. Maybe all I need is a little romance. I am nervous when I go to meet him at the pool. My pounding heart sways my body as I sit on the bench nearest the door. He requested my presence with such a ritualistic importance that I am now unexpectedly apprehensive. My toes curl in my high heels, scratching the suede soles in the ten predictable grooves. He seems to emerge out of the air behind me. In truth, he is simply the more nervous one, and arrived exceptionally early in contrast to my only mildly neurotic promptness. He has already looked around, captured a blueprint of the grounds in his patterning mind, and planned our escape route, if anyone should enter our little wet hideaway. He tells me as much. It was pointless, but I don't mention it. It is the middle of the night in the middle of our dry northern winter. No one wants to be damp in the dark in a dry freeze. We have the facilities entirely to ourselves. The pool itself is a scarlet ceramic bowl, a perfect circle. The lip of the pool rises slightly above the gold anti-slip flooring, which sinks under the sting of my heels like a dolphin's skin. The room is dark and small. He has turned off the lights in favour of the chandelier. My thoughts meander and meditate on the architecture half-heartedly. I am pulled back into reality by the warm touch of his composite fingers. Beckoning with his blue hand, he leads me to the edge of the pool. He is not a beautiful man with his low cheeks and thick brow. He has that look of excitement and nervousness I have seen once before. I'm going to show you something, say his eyes. I can read his apprehension and excitement, and it lights that empty place inside me for a moment. I sit on the edge of the pool with my feet in the water. He sits beside me, his big arms around me. He rubs my thighs with his hands, tracing both splits of my body with his palms, rubbing that place hard over yellowed bruises. His fingers creep under the edge of the metal lip, exploring the strange place between. It's a tight fit, 
He runs his finger along the vertical junction where the front of my thighs connect to the back, a divide I cannot feel. He searches that line with his hands, and I wish I could feel more than just a finger on me. I wish that line had special nerves only to be stimulated by him. He stops and pulls a silver stick, like the one he gave me, out of his pocket. I want to speak, to stop him, but he deftly jabs it into the side of my thigh. At this moment I realise that I have made a terrible mistake. He is some kind of sick serial killer, not a lonely and awkward romantic. I scream. He covers my mouth and continues to stab my thigh, digging deeper and deeper. When the attack fails to escalate to murder, I give up on screaming and instead look at him stabbing me, twisting his weapon inside me. He has stuck it into the divide, boring a hole into the metal. I realize then that it doesn't hurt terribly, even though it seems like it should. The pain is constant, but not overwhelming, more like an alert than an alarm. With a final deft twist, something clicks and unlocks. He releases me and then moves onto the other leg. I am too fascinated to stop him, although I would never have consented to this pseudo-medical operation. Both sides done, he pries apart the metal. I hear a long creak and feel a gentle ripping inside. He stands up, his pants wet from my splashing in the pool. He suddenly yanks off both my legs and I scream again. I feel electricity coming undone from the inside. Thousands of pathways suddenly snap apart and rush hurriedly to find their proper place. They burn, tingle, then settle. The charged sockets of my legs spark across the place we once connected, initiating a disembodied kicking reflex that knocks them into the pool. They float and then sink to the bottom, still twitching. The decompression around that ball of skin that makes the end of me is a little frightening. I have never seen it. It is horrifying to see. The muscles spasm and electricity runs the gamut of my body, forcing me to lie on my back to steady myself. Then it comes. For the first time in my life, I feel nothing down there. There is me, and then suddenly there is nothing where I should be. My torturer kneels and cups his hand on the bald ball of skin where I should be, and I can feel his hand in a place I did not know existed. He is touching the end. At first I am curious and tentative. I am too afraid to touch them. I can see both sides, which are uneven, and I am somehow disgusted by myself. I feel the bile rising, and the disorientation of losing something I did not know could be lost throws me. I vomit and fall sideways. I feel inhuman under his gaze. But he writes me and stares at the stumps with that initial curiosity I saw in my first lover. The eyes that have never seen another person in that way love me and only me. And somehow I know without asking that this is real and necessary and sacred. As he caresses both stumps at the same time, I feel conflicted ecstasy. His flesh hand is soft on my right leg. His metal hand is hard on my left. He reads my face for signs of pain, but I show pleasure, deep and whole. It reintegrates me. We do not fuck, we simply feel. It is unique and strange. 
then we do fuck and it is suddenly normal. A boy, a girl, a special place, a secret knowledge. He takes mine like someone took his. He keeps his arm on the whole time, although I believe he has taken it off before in this place, with someone else who saw his need before he knew what it was. As I lie there shattered, spent and disabled, I begin to wonder if I have ever been without those sad accessories. If I have, I cannot remember. I was too young when I lost my original legs. I was asleep when I was fitted with these. I cannot recall any other sensation. I peer over the edge to see them lying, distorted by ripples on scarlet tile. They look so much larger and more important when seen through water. I am angry with the doctors who did this to me. I am angry that I could not find this place all these years or mourn the loss of myself. What did they worry about? That touching this place would confuse my mind? That it might highlight that I am different, that I am disabled? Why is the burden of normalcy placed on those who are damaged? I love my legs. I love myself. I hit myself to love myself. How can you make a good choice or meet your needs when you do not know what they are? Even in fury, though, I recognize you cannot blame them. No one should be blamed. I have been given a gift. And honestly, why would you design a space to accommodate the outliers when you can rebuild the outliers to fit the space? I wonder who began this transformative ritual, who designed this initiation for the broken, coming of body by becoming less. I am more than I was before. I want to thank my lover, but I can't think of anything to say. Afterwards, he leaves without a word, his clothes still wet. He does not leave instructions, but I understand. I drag myself into the pool and swim as though I have never felt water. I swim until dawn. When it is time to go, I crawl to my bag and take out my silver key. I dive awkwardly for my legs and bring them to the surface again. With a little craftiness, I bend and latch them into place with a spark, closing secret pathways and feeling whole and more than whole at the same time. They're as good as new, only a little scratched. The day after I found that first place within me, the other place that I did not know existed, nothing changed. No one knew that I had changed. I knew. Someone else held my secret too. At home now, I am alone and at rest. I sleep through the night. I go on with my job. I laugh and gossip. Nothing has happened and I am frivolous. We are all the same. But I do feel different than before. Whether or not everyone else feels this way too, there is a new place inside me no one sees. So deep, it cannot be touched. So personal, I don't even want to share it, existing between both parts of myself. Without having ever felt myself disconnect, I didn't know what that place needed. I needed to be felt and acknowledged and given a place in my nervous system. Everywhere I go now, I see secret technologies, levers to pry off fingers disguised as toothbrushes, tiny screwdrivers in fancy pens, brooms with handles of peculiar shapes that can undo the latches on arms and reattach them using feet. 
This is a secret world only some of us know, one that goes unspoken even among the modified. If we ever told of it, then we might have to recognize that no matter how equal we are, we are not the same, that some of us can have an experience that no one else can know. The feeling of having a body that is at once there and not there is something special and wrong with us. I have never spoken of it to anyone. Sometimes I smile when I see deep scars on metal limbs. The doctor's assistant and I never make eye contact. I once tried to thank him, but I could not think of anything to say without violating our secret, so I said nothing. We will never see each other in that way again, and if I saw him without his arm, I would turn away in shame. I would feel as though I had shamed him, seeing him disarmed. But some day, some day I will make that special space with another. Some day I will show someone what he showed me. I will give some other person that gift, and we will say what cannot be said, and we will find relief in knowledge. For now, I am free and disabled in the familiar red water. Nil Desperandum is edited and published by Jim Phillips. Audio production in conjunction with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison and executive producer Charles McFall. And of course, Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Mm-hmm.